Well, welcome everybody to another uh, edition of Tree Actions, the uh, Human Forestry Podcast. And joining us today is Mr. Norm Hall, who uh, is a generational generational arborist. And, uh, you know, I, I think one of your claims to fame amongst several others, but one particular one that I think of is the whole Porter Wrap uh, design and, and, and invention. So... Maybe you want to just uh, tell us a little bit about where you came from and and who you are in the tree world, Norm. All right. Well, thank you for the invite. I appreciate it. Uh, the Porter Wrap thing is really Scotty's idea. Scott Profit's the brainchild. He got sick of doing Ring, ring Around the Rosie. Yeah. So he thought there's got to be a better way to do this. So the... Uh, first model the act believe it or not i'm pretty sure the porter wrap three is the seventh version of the actual porter wrap wow yeah the first version came out to to look like a seven it was a a a square tube with a round tube welded on it at about a five degree downward angle and that didn't work so we decided to put a tube opposite that one so it looked like a boat anchor right and that was the uh, the porter app one and then we experience ropes during negative rigging operations we experience the running end of the rope coming off the the short leg right so we decided to uh, put that retaining l-shaped device at the top and that solved that right. problem. That, that's the Porter Wrap 2. <laughs> and then the, uh, the Porter Wrap 3 came came about through uh, all of our innovations. Right. So and, and what was your part of it, Norm? Was your part like welding pieces or and as well as being yeah. the guy cutting the pieces or all of that? I did all. I cut them, I shaped them, and I had the guys in my shop weld them together. I, I'm not a good welder. Okay. And uh, I made all the uh, the pieces, cut them, cut them to fit, and then I had them weld them, weld them to the tubes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the Porter Wrap Two design. I gave one to Rip, one to Ken, and uh, they decided to run with that one. Cool. It is probably the most ubiquitous like arborist tool out there. Everybody knows what a porter wrap is. In fact, it's almost like the band aid, right? Even if it's not a porter wrap, they call it a porter wrap, right? Like you know, there's somebody's, yeah. you know, this yeah. T shaped looking thing that somebody cobbled together. Oh, that's our porter wrap. It's like, yeah, nah. But right. yeah, it, it is probably the single most ubiquitous, other than like rope. Like almost every tree crew has um, a porter wrap. In yeah. fact, I've even met tree crews that don't climb, but they still have, well, you know, they don't climb with rope. They still have border wraps, which is amazing. But yeah, it's a definitely an iconic, wow. <laughs> iconic tool. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's thank timeless, you. right? It's, it's timeless. Yeah. I mean, everyone tries to make variations and it's, I, I think I saw one the other day. I don't remember what it was called, but I'm looking at this thing going like, 
Do you know how many times I've seen the Porter app tied to a tree upside down? And that's that's the Porter app's about as basic as you can get. Now you want to hand a tree guy this thing that like like might actually require some thought. I'm like, that's not going to work. It's you know, it's just, but it's funny. It's just, it's everywhere. I mean, I see it all over the world. You know, all over the world. It's it's amazing. Yeah, it's funny you should mention that being tied upside down. I was watching a TV show on one of the History Channel or National Geographic Channel, and they had. They showed the porter wrap, them using the porter wrap upside, tied on upside down. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's amazing. I mean, the instructions are come with the device. Just All right. Well, the amazing read them. The amazing part, and maybe why it's a design uh, triumph, is it still works upside down. Not as well, but it works. <laughs> like it's not like it, it does doesn't work. work. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, they had it, it working. Yeah, it just yep. doesn't work as well. It, 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 yeah, but it's absolutely amazing. Which is which is part of its ingeniousness, you know. Which is part of its beauty, you know. That you you could screw it up and it won't let you down too badly, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I want it. There, there's a real. There's a definite. You know, you know the, you know it's kind of like it was probably maybe one of the geniuses of the taut line hitch or some of the hitches out there. You know, like or the ones that make it. Like even if you time wrong, mostly they'll grab. At least they won't. You won't completely fall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. yeah, exactly. yeah, he won't completely. You know, fall. It's, it's one of the criteria for for uh, for whether it survives or not. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, even it's, the Blake it, hitch. You remember the first iteration of the Blake hitch that got promoted was the the, the suicide. You know, where it was oh, yeah. it was actually it was it was showcased as a new knot in an industry publication, and it had been tied incorrectly. <laughs> Right, the old speed knot. I went through all the yeah. I had I learned how to climb with a taut line, two over two, and then John Henriksen came back from a uh, ISA convention and showed me the uh, Blake hitch. And man, world of difference between the two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You know, that's another person that would be an interesting person to have a chat with is Mr. John Henriksen. Yeah, as far as the yeah. reactions, reactions to what's gone out in the tree industry. Mm-hmm. Um, Norm, one of the things is, as we like to talk about the, the training aspect, and most of the people we've been talking about are involved in the training education part of it in one way, shape, or form. Um, maybe you want to just, like... Do you, how did you get involved with training? Do you, what, what, what started it for you? How did it all get, begin? Where did it begin? Oh man, let me think. That's talking mid eighties, probably <clears throat> the company I work for, the care trees, they had their, uh, a maintenance division that did all our maintenance on vehicles, chippers, stumpers, et cetera. And they wanted to have a, uh, a seminar. And so, uh, my name was out there. And so they asked me if I would mind doing a seminar on, they called it technical rigging. So I said, sure. What do we, what do we want to present? And uh, so we, we made up kind of an outline and we made a tree stand that would fit a, about a eight inch tree. So we cut down a tree that has a couple of two foot stubs on it. We could use for rigging. No. Time came to do the show, and I was scared shitless. So, fortunately, my dad was there, 
And he goes, Norm, you're a nervous wreck. What do we need to do? And I just said, I don't even know how to start. So he kind of calmed me down and told me, you know, what to say. And so the thing, I think the thing with training is to know your topic and know how to present it and know how to present it to in a way that the people understand it. So it was only a, a, a three-hour session. So I got through that, and most of the people liked what I did, and I started training for the Care Trees in 1988 and then pretty much became a full-time trainer in 1992. Uh, Care Trees had seven offices in the Midwest, seven offices in the Northeast, three in Philly, three in the Washington, D.C. area, and two in the San Francisco Bay area. And I visited every office except for one in the Philly area. So I made my way around the country. It's just, it's really, it's my passion. I love, I love to do it. I love to keep update on all the new techniques. Um, this year, the Illinois, I'm a lead instructor for the Illinois Arbor Association. We presented 34 trainings. Wow. Uh, Mostly rigging, uh, we will do climbing, rescue, both bucket and rope and harness, filling, right. chainsaw maintenance, I mean, anything that has to do with the climbing arborist, that's what our domain teaches. We have four different domains, and our domain is the tree worker domain. Right. So it's, I just have fun doing it. I love doing it. I like seeing people's reactions to what we present. I just want to keep on doing it until I get tired of doing it. And I don't see that happening in the near future. Right on, right on. So, so your, your introduction to the old training world was, well, was through the, the company. Yes. Through the care trees. Right. Okay. Cool. And, and they were that, super supportive. John, John Anderson and my dad were very supportive. They had, they played key roles in, in my career for sure that's interesting you know because because my you know my my connection to you through the training world came about through the arbor master connection so where how did that play into your or where did that fit in because you were it sounds like you were involved in it before that the care trees hired Arbor Master Training to do some training for the uh, production foreman of each office. Each there, there, there was seven offices in Illinois. Then each office had a production manager, a production foreman. So, and we asked production foreman from all the offices all over the country to come to Illinois and uh, come in for a five day training put on by Evermaster training. So a couple of times Kenny came out most of the time rip came out and they kind of noticed my skill level and they asked if I would mind helping them out in the training session. So that's, that's how that evolved. They even had Kenny and rip stay at, at our house in the, in Illinois. Okay. The, and did you, did very, that, very good. Friend. 
Even you did, right. Dwayne, right? You stayed at our house. Yes, yes, yes. And were we, what were we doing? Were we doing a Arbor Master thing at that time? I'm trying to remember why we were there. It must have been some kind yeah, of training. I think it might have been an open enrollment type situation, and we were just near where you were because oh, yeah, you know, a bunch right. of courses ended up running, like, you know, just for any tree company that wanted to come attend or any person that, but it kind of, I think their presence in the area, you know, was initially started from connection with, with the care trees and, and you guys there, but it it spilled over into, and that was something that, you know, you you know, even the care trees at the time was supportive of was, you know, even though they were competitors, they didn't mind. I don't know if you, your your site hosted it or if he was even the Illinois chapter. I may have been involved at some point. I'm not sure. That was a long time ago. I don't I don't remember exactly how what what happened there. But I, I was thinking you're right. Cool. I think it was an open enrollment type thing, and people from because uh, yeah. I remember. I remember Ken and Rip in early Arbor Master days, they did a lot more like seminar style stuff than straight up training courses, I think, um, you know, to to kind of until they got a foothold. So like when I first got involved, that would have been late 90s. Um, I think my first exposure to Arbor Master was probably just a seminar, you know, like a two or three day seminar. Basically, it was pseudo hands on, um, but it wasn't necessarily like their their four day training course and stuff, which I took later. So maybe it was something like that might have just been yeah, that's was, probably why it, it all blends together. It was a little bit of everything. It was the early nineties, you know, and hopefully we'll maybe be able to get rip on at some point or can, but uh where they, they what happened is they made a connection with Husqvarna at the Paul Bunyan show. The there was a marketer there with Husqvarna that was watching them do what you're talking about, Tony. Mm-hmm. And they would demonstrate a little, and the and and the the person said, "Listen, you guys got to you, you're on to something here, but you're basically just showing off. Like you're not you're." And they had called the company Arbor Master Training already, but said, "You're not training. You're you're just you're just showing off." And and we, you know they wanted to get involved, so that's when they uh, introduced them to. Um, I don't think it was Sorn, but, but Sorn might have been part of it in the very beginning. But Tim Ard specifically, mm-hmm. and when they met right. Tim, Tim was the one that that helped them put their seminar model into a three day curriculum, and Chainsaw became a, a a more significant portion of it, which it hadn't been prior. And Tim always taught that for the first time. Like when I took it, Tim was the Chainsaw instructor. Ken and Rip yep. didn't teach Chainsaw, and uh, exactly. And then uh, you know they and they had they formed a partnership and a company that lasted for a few years before uh, uh, Tim and Ken I guess couldn't always see eye to eye so they parted ways and and that's the whole Arbor Games that that was part of that process as well mm. that was yeah. and it was connected through Husqvarna Tim Ard and you know Force Applications was part of it there was there was a strong alliance between the three but and the and the Chainsaw curriculum was really Game of Logging's chainsaw programs yeah. or a very close resemblance That's, of that yeah, yeah. and uh, exactly how I remember. tim R did the chainsaw portion yeah and I, I made the national finals in uh nelsonville i don't remember the year but nice our tim Ard was part of that as well and i just as a matter of fact i just saw tim this past 
fall. Nice. I went to, he invited me to one of his seminars that was pretty local in Illinois. So I went and saw him present for half a day. He's still on, on the ball game, man. He's the best chainsaw instructor out there. I agree. I, I, I just, I, I stay connected with Tim also and we chat periodically and, you know, I learned so much from him and I, you know, I, I still credit much of my chainsaw. Absolutely. You know, where I got in chainsaw was so much due to Tim, which, you know, and he's so humble and great to still talk to. He's more than willing to talk. He's oh, yeah. a true heart of a teacher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, what I, mean, I love you, about him. Yeah. I mean, yeah. really, if you think about it, like Jim, Tim's chainsaw, the way he teaches, everything else is just a variation on his theme because you learned it from him. I learned it from you. It's, you know, I, I've, I've heard him speak and talk and I haven't t- spent done a course, but I keep meaning to go down and do one with him. But it's just... I use the same words that he's using. That has to be a direct line, right? You know, it's like that's yeah, right through. Yeah. And, and I remember the Arbor Games, Norm, because that's when I first met you. Because I took play took part in the North American Finals at Stevens Point, and I think that was '98. I got a plaque around here somewhere. And you were yeah. like judging the work climb, I believe, right? I was. So it would have been like Mike me, yeah, yeah, and Peter Peter Donzelli was there, and Dan Crowley. Well, he won was that there. sucker. And he won um, it. I'm trying to think. He took third. Yeah. Oh, didn't he? I thought he won. I think Dan won, if I remember correctly, oh. overall. But it's, that was the first time. And I'm like, here I am, like, you know, like, I'm second generation, but I'd only been climbing as a professional for, like, five, six years. And Norm's watching me climb. I'm like, oh, God, this is going to be terrible. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I, I learned, you know what, Um, in those moments, like, when I learned so much more than when, th- not that things went bad, but I learned so much more just because of the skill level that was there, you know, and it's just, uh, oh, yeah. just, it was a phenomenal opportunity for me. And I think that's, that's what really got me kind of hooked on doing the tree climbing competitions. And then my association through Ken, knowing Ken and Rip and then Ken and Rip being involved with the ITCC. Like in 2000, I went and volunteered. It was in Baltimore. So it was only a couple hours South of me here. So, yeah. and from like 2000 to, well, for, for, 21 years straight i volunteered i missed one year 19 years consecutively 21 years total and you know wow. Good for you too. but it's you know it's fun to talk about this history because people often ask you know like well how do you become a trainer it's like you can draw a straight line through that you know our like tim our armor master Dwayne arbor games itcc you know it's really a it's really a straight line and it's fun to to see that history and how it is. I'm not sure if it's possible to do that anymore. Things have gotten a bit convoluted along those lines, but I do remember that that was a, a seminal experience in my arboricultural care, meeting you there and going out there and competing. And, and it was just, it was, it was, it was phenomenal. You know, my, my, nothing in a ITCC. I, I did it for, I judged for 14 years. Mm-hmm. Right. Still wish I could do it, but there's people out there better than I know. I'm, yeah, I'm guessing, I guess that's the case with me because they just stopped asking. So I'm okay. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> what happens. I guess it was better. So whatever. That's fine. I had a great time doing it. It was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, you know, it. when things change, you know, you had to, they, they, they got more organized and then you had to fill out a form and you had to do it online and everybody had to do it, including all the old guard. And it just felt like, okay, you know what? It's time. It's, it's reaching another stage. It's a new era. I don't I'm not going to fill out my volunteer form. I've been doing this for right. however many years. Now I'm supposed to start filling out a form everyone and tell them who I am and where I want to be involved. It's like, yeah, I think it's time to move on. Right. 
and not in a bitterness right. way or anything. It's just, no. It was a sign, you know, it was a sign. <laughs> well, I mean, I, what I think I love the most about it was that, you know, just the community, right? So my last like five, six years of volunteer and for ITCC, I was really just going to see people. That's really the only place I got to see them and hang out with them. And then as those people started to fade and not come around, I'm like, you know, like, just why am I here? So it was, it ran its course. I, it was a lot like a big old tree for me, right? Like it, you know, it started slowly, it picked me up and it flourished and then it, and then it kind of declined slowly. And I still love, I still help out on the chapter level. And, you know, if anyone asks someone, I'm happy to do it because I love it. I absolutely love it. But it's just, it's, it's funny how that, there's no way to be an arboricultural, no direct route to be an arboricultural trainer in arboriculture. You just have to kind of hang around until someone gives you a job. Yeah, I still yeah. am our chapter comp as well. I I uh, chaired our chapter comp for uh, I'm thinking 18 years, and I'm down right now. I don't know, you know, both know Donna Polo and Eduardo Medina. They're co-chairing it now, but I'm still helping them out. This is nice. a lot of fun for me. I I enjoy doing it immensely. Yeah, yeah. You know, Norm, the last course I remember us being together on was. It was a it was an it was an, like a kind of an advanced rigging course. It was rigging level two, you know, a course that I had developed for Arbor Master, I guess you could say. And, and we were in Michigan City with the, the, the at the Dumkowskis. They were hosting. Oh yeah. It. I think sure. that was the last wow. time that we actually trained together, or we were you were like you were there as a senior student for sure. Yeah. Do you remember Good that memory? Absolutely, I do remember that. Yeah, yeah, I was there taking the course. Okay, Sean okay. Uh, Sean Gear was there, right? And Sean Gear and myself yeah. were delivering it. That's correct. Yeah. And it was it was yeah. one of the first deliveries. I think it was like the second delivery of rigging level two, which was a course that I cooked up. And you know, there was a couple courses I cooked up that Rip got a little befuddled with, like, what the heck is this? You know, but it, then uh, after it would became somewhat popular, he, he would get more encouraged by it. But Sean and I did the first few. And that was, I think, yeah. the second delivery. And we would, you know, we had the dynamometers and we'd kind of go into whatever, whatever kind of came up. And remember, we, that was the first time we, we tested the droop line. Was it? That was the first time in that. That was a white pine, right? Yeah, remember, remember, we we had this thought yeah. about what would happen if, and I remember uh, that. So, Tony, what we did I is we. That. Do you remember how we came up with that whole like idea? Are you asking me? Yeah, I have no clue how we came up with that idea. No, <laughs> I don't remember. Well, we were trying to figure out ways. Yeah, we were trying to figure out ways to reduce force on the on the spar pole. And so, Tony, yeah. what we came up with was, what if we dropped it into a slide? Like, you know how you don't drop into a tight slide line or a speed mm-hmm. line? Well, this was a, a, a loose speed line that was was slack enough but tight enough. So it was it was tight enough that the piece wouldn't hit the ground, but it was as loose as it could possibly be. So it had a, a speed line with a droop in it. But the other thing we did different is instead of anchoring it lower than the rigging point, we anchored it equal to or above the rigging point to an adjacent tree. 
So basically, the piece would come down and into a droop, hence the droop line term. And then we put dinos on both things, you know, and it was one of the beginnings of where, and we would see a dramatic reduction in force, you know, but we were missing, we were missing the bending moment component, but even not knowing that physics of that yet, you know, Sean would be up on the spar on that particular one. And, you know, there was a lot of uh, shake or jiggle. Now, while we had lower forces at the rigging point that we were reading on the dyno, the, what he was feeling on the spar was a the because it was side pull, right? It was there was enough side pull there that it was it just didn't feel, and so it wasn't. We we abandoned the idea relatively quickly. I don't know if we did it even if we demoed it again after that, but we did it a couple times yeah. at a couple courses, and we're like, and it was very experimental, anecdotal. You know, we got into this yesterday, Tony, talking to Thor, but you know that's how, but it never caught on as a technique because it just didn't quite feel right <laughs> it evolved into the vertical mm. speed line right just connected to a rope and drop it yeah. right and and that that it it, 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 it it was probably an iteration of that that you know certainly we never did think of and you know that's been a, that, you know that's that's not a bad little technique actually especially for keeping no, things from kicking out all the time. Yeah, yeah it works it works really it's one of those techniques that once you see it you're like I wish I'd have known that 10 years ago. Like really, yeah. like I could have yeah, used that so cool. often. And although fortunately yeah. now in my line of work, like when it involves wood like that, that's, it's usually a crane and a lift. I'm not complaining. It's all, it's all good, but it's funny how it's me and a set of spikes and a saddle rigging vertical speed line, big chunks of wood or um, mercifully in the past. <laughs> and that's another thing, Norm, that I think you were probably one of the first people that I talked to and got to know that had what I would consider extensive experience using cranes for tree work. Oh yeah. Yeah. My first crane job was 1986. Wow. And my dad was, my dad was there. He took took some pictures. Actually one of my spar pictures made it on the cover of uh, general agriculture in April of 1987 issue. But, that was my first, my very first crane job. John Hendrickson spent a considerable amount of time there coaching. Actually, I, I tag teamed that tree with my brother. <clears throat> so we had a, uh, a small crane. It was only an 18-ton crane. But one of us would go out and uh, set the chokers while the other, other one would come back and do the cut. And then when we were done with that limb, one who made the cut would go out and set the chokers on the next limb, and the other guy would make the cut so we wouldn't burn ourselves out. But it was a uh, very, very eye-opening experience for me, for sure. And were you guys, so I, like, the whole concept of balancing and that, was that already something that, you were working did, on? That didn't take place for until a couple years later. We were still using we were using wire rope chokers and we were trying to set the choker at the balancing point as much as we could. We actually we got pretty good at that, just using one wire rope choker. And when it came down to spar sections, we were setting the choke opposite the boom so the crane operator could pull the piece over. And uh, let's see, we had a tree that had blown over onto a customer's house in the North Shore. 
bought a 33 inch red oak and it had a from the root plate to where it was leaning on the house was 29 feet. There was no crane access. So we had to remove about an 18 inch elm tree and take out a wooden fence to get a 25 ton crane in there. And uh, that's when I came up with the first the balancer. So we wanted, we had to take this pick in one piece. It was going to be about 30 feet long. And we estimated it to weigh 9,000 pounds. Wow. So the crane operator uh, two-parted his line just in case, and I made a balancing sling out of one-inch hollow braid. I don't know if it was 10X or Yale X. And it worked out very, very well. The crane operator says, I want one of those. So yeah, that was that was actually my my first experience using a balancer, and then the balancer evolved into spider legs or just you know eye slings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, I don't remember what it was, but that was that had to have been mid nineties, maybe wow. early early to mid nineties. Yeah. And uh, when did splicing? become part of your repertoire, the knitting parties, as we affectionately call them. <laughs> I was a Boy Scout, and my dad was one of my leaders. Since I'm second generation, my dad knew how to splice three-strand. I started splicing three-strand rope when I was 13 or 14 years old. And then when they came out with the uh, New England, came out with Safety Blue Braided. Right. And Scotty, Scott Prophet. Learned how to splice that from, what was that guy's name? That worked at New England. Howard. Howard Wright. Right. Okay, yeah, yeah. And uh, then Scott came. When Scott and I were still working together, he would come to my house. I would come to his house, and we'd do uh, trainings for the care trees. He showed me how to splice up, see if he blue braided, and I just caught the bug, and it was It's just I, I love splicing. I still love splicing. It's something I really like to do. So uh, let's see. Then the Arbor side, Arbor store side of the care trees was buying rope products from Samson and Yale. So I had I bugged the Yale guy to teach me how to splice hollow braid, and he. He said, I'll tell you, I, I don't have time today, but the next time I'm in town, I'll let the uh, sales reps know at the Arbor store, and I can show you then. So he taught me how to splice hollow braid, and it's just, it's evolved since then. I've learned how to splice double braid, learned how to splice class two ropes. You know, it's something I really enjoy doing, and it's, the quality has to be there because, you know, people's lives depend on your splices. Yep. 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 So I, you know, attention to detail is a must. Right. Well, I've seen a lot of bad, bad, bad splices out there and it's actually, some of them are kind of scary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For real. And, For real. No. and where did, uh, did, um, 
Like, how do you feel that that splicing played a role in the like in the whole Herberts? Like, it sounds to me like like you were splicing rope. I know, I know, maybe for your cruise or something already long before it was even purchasable. Then, like, you were integrating it into the the workplace before it was something that people yeah. could really buy. Absolutely, yeah. It was all it all had to be approved from the safety committee, and actually, I was a member of the safety committee at a time, and not a lot, none of them knew what I was talking about. So it had to be approved by the chairman of the board, John. Right. So, yeah, it was, uh, he, then we had, uh, so just make sure that you're doing it according to what the you know manufacturer recommends. So I said, don't worry. I know people's lives depend on it. That's a big thing for me. And did, so, yeah, did we you just, uh, I was doing uh, most, I was doing all the Midwest splices at the time, yeah. Wow. Did you and Stanley ever splice together? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we enjoyed our company tremendous. Actually, Stan, Stanley even stayed at our house. Okay. He was doing a seminar at the Arbor Supply Store in Wheeling, Wheeling, Illinois. And uh, we jam- he jammed with Corinne's son. Right. He played guitar. Corinne's son played the uh, the keyboards. No. Uh, I was da- actually I, I was down downstairs splicing, and Stanley goes, "I got to go to the restroom." So the restroom, my wife was in the, the restroom on that floor. So we went upstairs to use the restroom upstairs and he heard Tyler jamming on his keyboards. And so then I hear this guitaring and keyboarding. I'm going upstairs and there they are jamming in the bedroom. <laughs> so Stanley, we're <laughs> He just, he just gave me that funny looking how he does. He just kept on jamming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's definitely oh, yeah. with Stanley for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so how do you? How do you? Like, I mean, I'm curious about your perspective on how splicing moved into mainstream arbor culture. Like, what was the progression? How did that happen? In your, from your viewpoint, you have to look at you know how knots reduce rope strength, and how splices you know only reduce rope strength eight to ten percent depending on. The rope fiber and what and the splice. So that was the big component for me is how much it does not reduce rope strength. But how did it get to where it is today? From like from basically a company that you know had a, a very stringent vetting process, and and you know you were practicing your due diligence by having a committee. You know, and saying yeah, we're 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 keeping our eye on this and making sure you were following manufacturers to like today now where you know it's just commonplace you know you, you oh, yeah. everybody uses quite materials like how how do you see that progression where how did that happen you know we're talking like from the 90s to now what are we talking 30 years yeah. and it's gone from very much obscurity to full-on mainstream that's that's the thing i'm talking about is i've seen some very scary splices, even during oh, wow. competition gear inspections. During competition gear inspections, you know, the splices now are supposed to be tagged. And if you find a splice that's not tagged, then they say, oh, that the tag came off. I said, well, you can't use it then. 
And they, then they get all upset and said, well, that, what am I supposed to climb on? I said, well, see if you can ask to see if you can use somebody else's rope. But, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. The splices um, nowadays have to be done according to manufacturer's recommendations. You know, there's a lot of people out there splicing their own ropes. And is that right? Yes and no. It'll save them money. But are they doing it according to manufacturer's recommendations? We do not know that unless we can tear the whole splice apart. Right. So the progression is is there. People are doing it, but are doing it according to manufacturer recommendations or specifications? We don't we don't know. That's you know, why they're uh, going with the uh, the tagging tagging each place. Right. I remember, um, you know. Uh, a gentleman with that was with Samson Ropes at the time when we were working with them. He was a bit, and he wasn't from the Irish industry. He came from more the sailing side of things. But he was he found it curious how we were so adamant about about that, about the credentialing of not only the splice but also the splicer. And uh, and his the reason he yeah. found it odd is he said like like who 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 credentials the knot tire. And uh, approves the knot, you know, and he said he, it was his opinion, which I found fascinating, that you you could screw up a knot probably easier than a splice, and and yet, and he would way rather climb on a on a splice than a knot, <laughs> and because a knot to him was like, woo, how do you know what knots or what? And it, and he, and it was an interesting discussion because he thought, why is everybody so worried about? You know, having it done properly. Obviously, anything done needs to be done properly. But he said, you can mess up a knot real easy. And it's got to hold yeah. your life up. And uh, I always found that curious. I was wondering what your thoughts would be on that whole concept. Like, your knots aren't tested and approved. And uh, maybe the knot tire is or isn't. I don't know. And the rope manufacturer certainly doesn't approve or disapprove knots. So... What do you do with that parallel? Like, why not splice? Why splice not? <laughs> right. What I'm seeing is it all comes down to cost. And we're training, we're in Illinois now, we're training more and more municipalities. And what we're finding is there's a lot less training going on with municipalities than there is with the commercial side. So... Getting these municipal arborists to uh, tie, you know, simple stationary bowling. It's like pulling teeth sometimes. Right. So we go, we tie stationary running uh, for rigging. Let me think. Double clove, cow hitch, and timber hitch. Those are the only, those are the five knots we teach in our rigging course. And uh, at the end of our course, we do have a practical test. They have to, they have one minute to tie each one of those knots. And believe it or not, the, the knot that they struggle with is the stationary bowling. They can tie the stationary bowling, or they can tie the running bowling, but they can't tie the stationary bowling for some reason because a lot of them are using the running bowling for pulling down trees and rigging limbs, and they can't tie the stationary bowling. <laughs> so... It's a, it's a struggle for them. Uh, 
How, how do you know that they tie it right when they're in the tree? Well, we have binoculars. <laughs> we watch them. We actually watch them tie the knot from binoculars. Right. So we can tell if it's right or wrong before they rig the piece down. And then we have a, uh, a coach up in the tree usually with them while they're doing their first couple of rigs. So the coach can right. coach them and how to properly tie that knot. But on the job... I mean, I'm, I'm sure everybody's heard of knots failing. So, is it was it tied properly? Did it, you know, work itself undone from not being properly set? Yeah, we we don't know. Even uh, some very well known arborists on uh, Instagram are showing fails, right? So, and we don't know if it's was properly tied or properly set or what. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, think uh, the, 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 the big difference, I think, knots is it's easy to it's easier to inspect a knot than a splice, right? For right. properness, and I think the other thing Absolutely. too is is to like especially when you get a, a almost any splice is difficult to do and master. Like it's it you know it takes some time, especially you start getting some of the double braids, double braid splices, the berry splices. I mean, when I first started splicing, I mean, I made a ton of dog toys because you know the incomplete splices, you, the dog would play with them. But it takes a long time, and I think that's the other thing too. Like you, you can learn a knot in a relatively you know manageable time frame, and it can be inspected, and you can tie it repeatedly. Where splicing takes a certain skill level, and if you don't have that skill level, and then you kind of start to cut corners, then the splice is totally wrong, but it's hidden; you can't really see. And right. so I think there's some inspection properties. And I think what really drove the splices is when we got away, you know, when the split tail system came in and we got it, we needed, you know, an anchor knot or we were anchoring with the end of the climbing line and the knot wasn't starting, was in the way. And then we switched mm-hmm. to the split tails. And I think that's what really drove the splices and climbing to be much, much more in demand because it would, it just streamlined that split tail system, no matter what system you're using, but especially, you know, like the French Prusix and all those things, it, it works so much better with the splices, I think that's what drove it. And I agree with you, Norm. I still see some, some sketchy, uh, you know, hand splices, but I see even, I see yeah. even more sketchy stitch splices because people don't quite understand, you know, when you get a mechanically stitched splice, I mean, that's done on a press, you know, and those two pieces of rope are pushed together under a great deal of force. And it's actually that force of them two pieces being put together that holds it, not the stitches that go through. And these guys are hand stitching them like, and it's like, Oh my God, like, you can't be doing that. You know, you just, it's just not, you can't be doing it. And they're, well, and their load testing is what well, hasn't broke yet, but you know, that's, we've been saying that forever, yeah. but it's really interesting to see the evolution of it. And I think that that split tail and switching to those types of system is what really drove the demand for splices. And I think that's what really made them kind of proliferate and make them very popular. Yeah. And not only that, the, the, like that, that, that system change was, you know, like a, a very significant change in configuration, I guess you could say, you know, like separating off, you know, not, not using the tail of a knot to tie to the fall, you know, which which in and of itself secured that tail. And when you left it loose, you didn't need it anymore because you used a separate tail, a separate piece of rope to form your hitch. You know, all sorts of wonderful things opened up. You know, you could use the the other end, you could pass over obstacles easier without untying. But then those knots, you know, that 
you know, for me, I was taught to use a bowl and not a clove hitch, and there, there's been different terminations over the years that I guess it was cultural or what company you worked for, whatever they used to tie the snap hook onto the climbing line and left a long tail. Even the, you know, I remember it was a big deal how long the tail was. I had a measuring technique, you know, how long that, that what was the perfect length, you know, to leave out of your knot yeah, right. to form your hitch with. Like, like that was, that was like, discussionary material man like how long do you leave yours you know and how much hanging out of your knot and oh, i can get a good throw with this length you know and then sometimes i'll tie it tighter in the tree when i'm going out on limbs like you know that was the that was that was nouveau shit you know and then suddenly you know someone cuts it off and ties it separate like what the hell and now we needed a termination. We needed an end, an, an end that wasn't fat and bulky. There were your beaner, or, you know, because then carabiners came in, and you can't have them flopping and sliding and rolling all over the place. And and then people started falling off the damn bowling because it was just, well, I'm yeah. using the bowling. I'll just tie the hole a little tighter. And well, now that and the knot became short, the tail became shorter because he didn't want it hanging around. Well, you know, you work a bowling yeah. knot too much, and the damn thing just unties. So. You know, Splice has just made all that so much easier, you know, and, um, um, yeah. And, you know, I think there was a real surge, too, when we started using the smaller cordage, like the 10Xs, for for tails, because it was, hollow braids are so much easier to splice. So, you know, it speaking to your comment, Tony, about how long it takes to perfect a splice, which I agree with, but the hollow braid is one of the simplest and easiest, and, you know, if, if I'm thankful at times that most people don't know how easy it actually can be, because there might be a heck of a lot more crappy splices going on out there, right. particularly with hitches. But you know, that's one thing, Norm, that I feel has been a has been lost is the art of the I and I tail, because that was a rope tool that was more than just a piece of rope with eye splices in it. The fact that that the, the berry would overlap and basically create a hollow braid eye and eye, or I mean a double braid yeah. eye and eye because the core was vital because an eye and eye that had a properly buried overlapped berry, which created a core that created a whole different type of hitch then when you know you had that little hollow section near the middle or a lump in the center and the same thing happened with stitching i'm sorry it's not the same tool anymore with a stitch because it doesn't have that filler in it i'm curious what you think about that so you're asking about the difference in doing i and i's with double braid the berry not with double braid with hollow braid but when you leave the core in there and you overlap it just right in essence it is a now you know the the the, the hollow braid becomes a double braid and when you tie it and even when you hold it the hand is completely different you know it doesn't flatten the way it does if it's left you know the berry isn't completed so to speak or if it's stitched so you're talking about the hourglass effect in the middle yes yeah yeah if they don't Okay, got it. Yeah, it's um, the problem with polyesters is they stretch, and you could have that perfect bud end in the middle when you're uh, first when you first complete the splice. But then, as you use that product, it stretches a little bit, and it, then that 
you know, creates that hourglass effect. So how do you overcome that? You really don't. Well, Stanley so used to overlap it somehow where it would, where it would, would, instead of like this, it would do this. You know, yeah. when you pulled it, it would go like that. And that was, I remember him talking about that being a real art. Right, right. Yeah, that's, uh, takes a little bit of experience, a little bit of time to uh, perfect how you do that. No, but even, you know, even the experienced splices are going to have that hourglass effect over time. That's right. why uh, they're coming up with these uh, non, a lot less non-stretchy rope fibers. Right, right. Stuff like uh, HMG is a double braid. Yeah, but there are other products out there there that are not not nearly as stretchy as uh, products like 10x, ELX, right? Mirex. Well, and the and the the aramids or the not sorry not the aramids, but the heat resistance that that became, you know, it's interesting how they became a lot more important. Because our and with the advent of the new hitches, we were just sliding a lot faster. Oh yeah, creating a lot more heat in the climbing system than we used to, right? And all of a sudden, and using thinner cordage, so all of a sudden, the, a reality became of melting through your hitch. <laughs> yeah, that always that always bothered me at the tree climbing competitions years ago. When after the tree climber descended off the work climb, you know, he had to burn down yeah. to hit the bullseye. And then they collected his hitch cord and said, man, this thing is burnt to a crisp. We're going to deduct some points for that. Said, how am I supposed to come down and land on the bullseye? <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's just going to happen, you know, with the polyester and the class one fibers. You know, there's, there's no way around that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Low melting point, you bet. Absolutely. Well, and now you see, you know, the push almost away from the – to me, the hand splices into the stitch splices, and I think that's coming right. from because the downside of the berry splice or the hand splices, you always have that thick part right at the throat, so you can only work so close to that, especially yeah. with hitch cords. So when you start to get into those stitch splices, and it occurred to me as we're talking that you know you you talk about like the two big changes in the last what thirty forty years, right? We went from basically an open or closed systems to open systems, right? So. Yep. And that was really a change in configuration. The forces really didn't change. And then you flash right. forward 20 years and we go from moving rope to stationary rope. And the configuration is the same, but it's a change in forces, right? So it's, I wonder if the next change is going to be a change in configuration and forces. I don't know, right? But it was, <laughs> it's, and it, yeah, right. but it, it, you know, when those changes came about, I remember because I've, I've really, I've started as a professional arborist right on the cusp of like, Split tail was, it had its foothold in, but it, it, it was still very new, right? It was, you know, it was, it was still, you'd go out and show some guy a, a, a Blake's with a split tail and, and they'd be like, oh my God, like you handed him fire. Um, and then you put a pulley underneath it and you were some kind of God. But, uh, you know, when those changes happened, and I don't know quite why it, it, they, they happen slower over time. I guess it has to do with technology and social media and they, they were passed yeah. down from one person to the next. But when the stationary rope stuff came in, it seemed to happen much faster and it, it almost seemed to create zealots, you know, like the people that are really big proponents of it. It was almost like, Oh my God, if you're not climbing this way, you're somehow backwards or old school. And it's like, 
No, not really. I mean, we've been doing this work for quite a long time, you know, um, with a, with our Blake stitches and we've been relatively safe, not saying system one's good or bad, but it's just, and I'm not quite sure how that happened. I think it really came down to the speed of it, of it happening, you know, cause for the, for split tails to kind of infiltrate took five, six years, um, ultimately till it was almost common. But, you know, when you got into some of the newer techniques, like the rope wrenches and things like that, they happened very quickly, like within one to two years, you know, people were, they were just all over them. And it was interesting to watch that to have been, I'm fortunate in my career to have seen both, right? I think I didn't, I would, I don't think I'd have noticed it if I'd have missed, if I'd have gotten in five years later, I don't think I'd have noticed the change as much. You know, and, and I think it's important to remember, well, at least for myself, that, you know, my age and generation change shifting as well. Like, what would I have been like if, you know, when I was in my mid-20s and the wrench came out? Where would I be sitting on the on the scenario, you know? And, you know, like, I, I the Blakes didn't exist when I started climbing either, you know? And, and what, you know... Yeah, I find it funny because people say, well, I even teach the Blake's hitch. It's like, well, <laughs> it's not really even the oldest, right? Like, the the Tonline's yeah. actually been dusted, you know? Like, it's it's, okay. it's so far back that that it isn't even, yeah. you know, and I remember common, like, it was standard curriculum in the Arbor Master curriculum about how with three-strand rope, the Tonline hitch doesn't roll. And it's true. On three-strand rope, the taut line does not bind up and get tight. That only started right, happening right. with braided line, you know. It, it, and and that whole discussion of how the rope you use changes everything, and even its its braid can change how a, a, a device or a hit a knot or a hitch will operate. And uh, you know that was the quest. The only reason the quest the Blake's was so great because it didn't get so freaking tight. Right, whereas the taut line, ever since Arborplex became the way to go, all of a sudden everyone was struggling with these tight hitches. That you know, you you got the old safety guys that all they ever knew was three strand. It's like, well, you guys, you got this nice fancy rope, and you're bitching about the taut line. Never had any problem with it, but you know, they weren't. They didn't try climbing on it, right? <laughs> and what do you need the blades for? You know, like well. Whereas if you go and tie it, and and I I tested this, you know, I had DJ was going, well, I was doing a presentation, I asked him for help, and I said get some three strand, and he went and he bought the stuff and he tied. It. He said, Dad, holy crap, you know, on three strand rope, this taut line setup is actually pretty nice. It slides really mm-hmm. nice and smooth, and it doesn't get all tight, and uh, it's really fascinating, and you know. We just did a climbing review of our climbing stuff, and the taut line is gone. Like, we don't even talk about it, and yet we, we act like we're paying homage to the history by talking about the Blake. And I didn't say anything because I feel like I'm just that old. But, you know, it, there is, you know, the the the, 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 the Schwabish, uh, yeah, the Schwabish is a variation of the taut line. Really? Yeah, it is. It, it, it's all it is <laughs> or 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 the other way around i don't know which but i've always when i did still teach climb which i haven't done now for several years i would always make that connection like it wasn't and i you could get someone that was really old school on a taut line to actually try a schwabish because it looked kind of like a taut line <laughs> yeah i get them confused too i don't know if it's the distal or the schwabish 
one, one of the two, them, yes. The diesel, one of, the one comes out the same side and one is the opposite side. Is it the diesel, Tony? I think the diesel comes out opposite sides. Yeah, so it's the diesel yeah. that's yeah. like a top line. The Swabish yeah. is essentially just an offset prusik, right? An offset Correct. English right. prusik. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it is the diesel, sorry. Mm-hmm. But I always have yeah. found it fascinating, you know, and it was Pete, I think, that showed me that, you know, and he said, check this out. Because you tie an old-style top line, and you take that end, and you tie it down, and you've got a two-over-two diesel. Which slides, yeah. but if you take right. two over three over one, even on half inch rope, it it holds. <laughs> just boom, just like right. that. Well, know, that and, and, go ahead. Uh, the other the other magic part about uh, taunt lines was you could tie that stuff one handed when you were practiced, right? You could reach out there and tie it with one hand. Now yep. I don't know why you'd want to do that, but sometimes you would do that. <laughs> Hey man, yeah. it's tree work, you know. It's like, yeah. man, there might be times. I mean, I mean, that was a big thing with the bowling too, right? You could tie it with round yourself with one hand, to, mm-hmm. you know. Right. I know you could. I don't, again, why I don't know, but it was it was one of its attributes <laughs> that would be discussed. <laughs> right. For what? Oh, well, you did it when you got shamed out of wearing your chicken strap. I mean, your lanyard, and then you know, and then you, <laughs> you you couldn't let go. Yeah. <laughs> But, yeah yeah well i think it was a it was a benefit because you were in that system before the split tail you were tying and untying that not a good deal you know you just were I yep. mean, it, it was True. not uncommon to you know untie that knot out quite a few times in the course of your climb and have to retie it so it was you know being the ability to do it one hand whether you're hanging on with the other one or not was was beneficial you know well i mean i would say there was a fair bit of that you know you were actually holding on to something oh, yeah. Well, you tied in, and that was the reason it was nice to do it one hand. I wouldn't know anything about that. (laughs) I will neither confirm nor deny that comment. Yeah, yeah. True. I guess I would have to agree on that one. Then, uh, yeah, like advancing your rope and moving through the tree, like hoof to man. Like, I mean, for me, I, I was I was taught you clip the rope to your belt. You know, you had your, your your tail set for the right length. And before you cut anything, you tied in. But you got up as fast as you could. So either you'd get a boost or they'd throw a ladder up. you climb the first set of limbs and you'd hustle your ass to the top. And we just climbed it. Yep. And, you know, if something was in your way, it was discouraged to stop and cut on the way up because, you know, you weren't tied in. But you there you, it was, you know, I remember when they first, I first saw throw line and setting from the ground. It's like, what the, what, what, do, just get up there and tie in, you know? And, and, yeah. uh, right. and that's how I was trained. And then you got to the top, throw your lanyard around if you had it and, and throw it, throw your rope over a union and tie on. Now you're good. Now you're good to start working. So it was that moment of, each each climb began with that just just get up there hold on tight and climb away but it was there was no i wasn't tied in for the entire ascent <laughs> for a lot of years i did oh, yeah. that and that's how everybody did it i didn't know any different i didn't know that i just didn't know any different and and you know i never was taught on a taut line myself i was taught two under up a half hitch over a half hitch or over over a yeah, so 
they weren't it wasn't two over and two over like the way that tall line was you tie two wraps up and a half hitch and then again over top of it kind of like the way you'd finish a clove wow and that was it okay. and that was it and it never it never got tight and the tail never rolled and it was on a marine braid, double braid, thick, heavy line. Like it was a half inch, but man, the sucker was thick. It was strong stuff. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's, and a snap. I, you know, we were advanced. We had snaps because like some guys wouldn't use the snaps because that was, you just tied to the belt. Like if you, you know, that was the proper way. You were getting real fancy if you had a clip that you could unclip it from your belt. <laughs> yeah, right. So you were back in those days where people were actually tying tying the rope to their harness with no snap. Yeah. Yeah, tying yeah, it right well, to the D-ring, yeah. <clears throat> when I first started climbing, we were climbing on half-inch manila. <laughs> and we would have to get a new rope every, probably every four to six months because of the rat decay. Wow. <clears throat> I was one of the only ones using a non-locking snap at the time. There were no such thing as locking snaps. Right. And we were climbing with even without a lanyard. So all we had on our harness, we were still painting our cuts. So we had a paint pot with a brush. Yeah. A handsaw. Some of us used a handsaw on a scabbard. Some of us just tied a wire around the handle. It was a fano number eight. We clipped it to our harness. And then just clipped our rope to our harness, and we would ascend up the tree, you know, free climb, never tied in. Yeah. So that was that was those are some scary days. I did I don't remember when I used the, a lanyard for the first time, but I climbed many many years like that. Yeah. And the first time I used a synthetic rope, it was a synthetic three strand. And a rope manufacturer brought this three-strand to one of our climbing camps at the Morton Arboretum. And it was he was selling it at a very, very low price. So my dad bought three of them, and I was one of the first ones to check it out. And I did notice that it was a lot slipperier, and the tie line hitch was indeed walking out. So <laughs> yeah. that's, when we decided, that's when we decided to use a stopper knot. But, yeah, yep. with the... With the with sisal or manila rope, the uh, taut line hitch really didn't walk much at all. No, nope. no, nope. it wasn't. So it wasn't until we started using synthetics yep. that it started to walk any longer. Yep. And that's when we started using the uh, stopper knots. Where we, I, I can't even tell you when first time I used a locking snap. I climbed on non locking snaps for many many years. Yeah. And I don't think there were even D-rings on the side of our harness for a lanyard, from what I remember. Could be. Yeah, Tony, like and you... What, what, what would we do with our climbing lines when we thought they were unsafe to climb with? We had downgraded them to a rigging line. Right. Yeah, how That's stupid right. is that? Yeah. <laughs> it won't hold my 180-pound skinny ass, but I'll tie exactly. a 300-pound piece of wood to her every day. <laughs> That's exactly what we do. We downgrade our climbing lines to a rigging line. That's exactly. figure that one out. I know. I, I was the same. It was. It just made sense. It was the lot. You know, it was like the old motor oil was used for bar oil. 
You know, that was the recycle <laughs> program, man. Like it was on the same lines, and it just it was it it was just seemed like the right. It just it, it was just the way it was. I don't know. It's really odd. Maybe Tony, you were were you in the middle of that, Tony, or were you right? Like I mean, I learned to climb as a teenager, so you know my dad working, and that was I don't we didn't have locking snaps. Um, I don't think I ever tied directly to a belt. And then when I started climbing professionally, working with my brother, the, I had a snap, but it wasn't a locking snap. I was I was right on that cusp of when carabiners were starting to come in, and, yeah. and I wasn't quite early enough to be on on manila rope or three strand it was still you know safety blue was pretty entrenched um we had snaps but they certainly weren't locking snaps and carabiners were new if you had a carabiner that was pretty exciting yeah and then you know started out with a taunt line and then pretty quickly went to the blakes pretty quickly went in you know within four or five years into split tail systems and then the fair tending slack tending pulleys underneath and and that progression up and through which happened so i got right in on that end but i remember as you know teenager i'd go to work with my dad and watch the guys climb and they were just what you're describing three strand tying right on like just it was just what you did like yeah you, no need to tie until you get up there <laughs> so it's right and it's and it's not that it, it 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 was just we didn't have the they didn't have the tools or the techniques right to to manage those things. I mean, if like it, I kind of equate it to like first time doing spar work. Like I didn't know anything about tying in with like a cinching or a choking, you know, friction saver. I didn't, we just, we just sat on a lanyard and cut. I didn't know any other thing to do. Like, you know, I wasn't clever enough to figure it out on my own. And then when people started showing me, I'm like, well, that's a good idea. You know, that that's going to be way easier and, and way less scary yeah. and, uh, and adopted from there. Yeah. I think it was interesting, Tony, and we've talked about it a few times. I'm curious, Norm, how you think the the internet and the you know the 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 Google trainer, the YouTube trainer model that exists now. It seems like you can really well. You certainly can see how to do something. I, you may not see the best way or whatever, but you can find a lot of stuff out and sort of self teach. In a whole different way than than when we were starting in the business, to say the least. And, and even you know my, the working part of my career, even even starting training, that wasn't didn't exist. You know. Oh yeah. Right. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? How, where does that fit into these things? Into the into the fray these days, Norm. It's, it depends on who who is you know on the other end of that camera. There are good things out there, and there are some painfully bad things out there. So, you know, everybody says, yeah, I, I taught myself, I Googled it and I learned how to do it. Well, yeah, did it learn the right way? Cause there are, you know, ways to do it right. And there are numerous ways to do it wrong. So yeah, yeah it's a good yeah. thing and a bad thing, but yeah. it's just like, I, agree. I Google chainsaw sharpening or chain sharpening. And there's, you know, all these different ways to sharpen a chain and, 99% of them are not the right way to do it. <laughs> yep. Yep. So, yeah. It seems to be a, a lot of porter wraps hooked up the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I was, so, yeah. I've, to answer your question, there's there's good good info out there and there's some bad info out there. And, you know, climber's going to get hurt. 
Burnt or killed. I tell I tell newer guys that ask me or people get in an industry, I'm like, just don't use like YouTube and stuff like that. Don't use it as your first point of reference, right? Yeah, get experience yeah. from a person or a book or, a, or you know, a verified source and then use YouTube to back that up so that you have a frame of reference so that, you know, when you see that guy doing what we were doing 25 years ago and we know now that it's not safe, you know, don't don't be doing that. And it's and I think, yeah, need. They really you need to differentiate between there's a big difference between a bunch of guys in their backyard on a weekend doing silly tree stuff. And then there's, hey, here's some professionals. And we had this job and it was kind of challenging. Check out how we handled it. And then the next level would be, look, I'm going to teach you how to do this. And those are three very different things, um, you know, and you can't you can't confuse them, you know, and it's but it has definitely changed the dynamics of training because you you, you essentially have the YouTube trainer in the classroom with you now, somebody that you have to. It's like, well, I saw this on YouTube. It's like, oh, you know, Jesus, here we go again. But just don't, I tell them, don't use it as your first point of reference, right? Get a frame of reference that's yeah. verified that you can trust and then go to YouTube and say, oh, no, wait, that's not what Norm told me to do. That that doesn't make sense, you know, and then go from there. Yeah, good you point. Know, uh, Norm, how would you say, like, being connected to training as long as you have been, you know, and it's been a part of your arborist career. You know how how has that played a impacted your you in your career, your life? You know, as uh, you know, just how has training you know been part of that for you? Would you say like being connected to that part of the industry? Being a trainer, you have to keep up with all the new techniques uh you meet lots of people you have to in my opinion you have to be passionate about it you have to know what you're talking about different skill levels you know you have to speak to the skill level of the person or persons you are training or instructing there's a it's just like i said before going from commercial arborists to the other sector, you know, I have to, to speak it to their level. Um, just keeping up on the new techniques. You know, when I was on the ANSI committee, I was on the uh, climbing, rigging, crane subcommittees. That was fantastic. Mm. I still sometimes get um, parts of that. I don't have any, any input anymore, but I learn, I get some input from, you know, other individuals, but yeah, just keeping up to date with the newer techniques. And, uh, I even enjoy attending, you know, other trainers courses like it's Tim Hart thing. Who's, you know, the guy is, he's just a, a fantastic instructor. So, you yeah. know, you, you, you never can stop learning, in my opinion. And, you know, I just really enjoy it. I have a passion for it. Keeping up to date on new techniques. That's about, yeah, that's you know, my input it, on it, that. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, I find, you know, be. Uh, how many times can you take a course before you'd ever stop learning something, you know, 
even the same course. You know, I think back to, you know, how many times you've actually delivered a course or even took a course while you were learning to deliver it. Um, they're never the same way twice, and the learning just continues. And I, I think that that's probably one of the things I've noticed in, in a real heart of a teacher is the ability to, like you went and listened to Tim teach. You went and attended his seminar, and and you learned something just and, and enjoyed it, you know. Um, this the concept oh, of yeah. well, I've I've already taken it. Why would I go again? Like that just doesn't resonate with me somehow. I don't know where that is, but I've always been yeah, like no. you know, hey, yeah. Awesome. And uh, agreed. Yeah. Well, um. We always seem to hit this time zone where uh, this stage, this stage of the podcast or the discussion, where it, it seems to be like a natural break for things. And uh, I just want to thank you, Norm, for 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 taking your time and sharing. It was a cool uh, little history on the Porter Wrap, and uh, great talk about splicing. We even moved into the you know some of the history development of climbing and and. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I I don't have I don't go back as far as you where the where you had the paint can on the on the scabbard. You know, I find it fascinating. It was I don't know when it was, but it was well on in my career when I discovered working with Buckingham. You know, we it came up as to why the little clip is on the scabbard. <laughs> why there's that little yeah. clip? You know, and they were like, "Well, geez, it's just always been on there." And we figured out eventually that it was to hold the damn paint can. Yep, and and uh, they just never bothered taking it off because nobody used the paint can anymore. But that snap stayed on there, and it, it it they finally started leaving them off because they they weren't being used anymore. But but no one got the memo. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, I've always found that quite fascinating. Who knows what Man, the next? Old- What's that? Some good old Dr. Shago. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And I mean, and you you would have had opportunity to speak in no Shago as well, eh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he actually came to our shop. Wow. Did, did a presentation. Yeah, that was uh, very entertaining. The guy was a very dynamic speaker, for sure. Yeah. Got his autograph in his book. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's too bad we can't have a sit down with Dr. Shigo anymore. Yeah, yeah really. amen. Well, um, right. I know you've got a uh, company coming and it is the season. So uh, thanks again, Norm. Merry Christmas yeah, so and happy holidays. And, uh, you know, at some point we'll have to say goodbye. <laughs> yeah, All thanks, right, Norm. Well, it's been great chatting you. with you. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Merry Christmas to you two gentlemen, and uh, happy holidays. And make it a safe holiday weekend, or safe holiday. All right, thanks, Norm. Absolutely, thanks you too, Norm. Thanks so much. Enjoy your time in Florida. Florida. Florida.